Hi, everybody. This is Kara Fitzgerald. New Frontiers in Functional Medicine is here every month, bringing you the best minds in functional medicine. And we would not be able to do this over the years without the generous contributions from our sponsors, Metagenics, Integrative Therapeutics, and Biotics Research. The mission of Metagenics is to lead the movement in making personalized nutritional intervention the standard of care in the treatment and prevention of disease and the promotion of optimal health. For over 30 years, Metagenics has been dedicated to scientific discovery, innovative products, unparalleled quality, education, and practitioner partnerships to support lifestyle functional nutrition. For more information, visit Metagenics at metagenics.com. Biotics Research. For four, over 40 years, the foundations of biotics research has been innovation and quality. Their goals remain unchanged. Innovative ideas, carefully researched concepts, and product development with advanced analytical and manufacturing techniques. Biotics nutritional products are of superior quality and effectiveness and available exclusively to healthcare professionals. Visit them at bioticsresearch.com. Integrative Therapeutics is focused on inspiring a better lifestyle through better health. By providing meticulously formulated nutritional supplements and valuable resources, Integrative Therapeutics promises to enrich your patients and embolden your practice. Welcome to your Integrative Therapeutics. Find them at integrativepro.com. Hi, everybody. It's Dr. Kara Fitzgerald, and we are here at New Frontiers in Functional Medicine, where I am interviewing the best minds in functional medicine. And today, of course, is no exception. And I'm really excited to be chatting with Dr. Tom O'Brien. I've known him. I, I've known you my entire career, actually, I think. And it's just, you've been an inspiration and a mentor to me and to so many. A little background on, on, on Dr. O'Brien. He's considered a Sherlock Holmes for chronic disease and teaches that recognizing and addressing the underlying mechanisms that activate an immune response is a map uh, to the highway towards better health. Um, he holds faculty positions at IFM as well as National University of Health Sciences. Uh, he's trained and certified tens of thousands of clinicians around the world in advanced understanding of wheat sensitivity uh, and the development of individual autoimmune diseases. His most recent book, You Can Fix Your Brain in Just just one hour a week to best memory, productivity, and sleep you've ever had was published through Rodale in 2018. Uh, and he's gotten rave reviews for that amazing work. In fact, we'll, we'll drill down into it today a little bit, and we'll also talk about uh, what Tom's been up to recently. You know, again, we're going to be focusing on this for the clinician, so I'll be pinging Dr. O'Brien on different labs he's using, how he's interpreting them, what kind of interventions he's using um, to fix our patients' brains. Dr. O'Brien, welcome to New Frontiers. Thank you so much. It's always a pleasure to be with you. You know, folks, you might hear just a little bit of wind in the background, so I'm just going to ask Tom what he's up to, <laughs> why we might be hearing that. Well, my wife and I are having a second honeymoon, and we're back uh, in Costa Rica, uh, where we came originally. And I was just thinking about this, you know. Um, I sat right here. We were here for six weeks. Uh, I can work anywhere if I have internet, you know. And so uh, my wife had this 
desire her entire life to get dark, you know, to get tanned. So she was serious about this. I mean, she was out in the sun right there and her iPhone alarm every 12 minutes and she'd turn an eighth and then turn an eighth and turn an eighth. So I'm sitting here looking at my beautiful wife and I read 93 research papers on the blood brain barrier <laughs> in six weeks. Wow. And this is our honeymoon. And I went back and eight months later and I called a lab and I said, did you know this or this or this or this? Wow. And eight months later, the neural zoomer plus test came out, looks at 46 different biomarkers of inflammation in the brain. And I'm, I hope we get into that one today because it's such a great tool. And I am not associated with that lab in any way whatsoever, but I just thought they had um, great technology and they'd be receptive to this. And so this is where I was sitting and that was um, uh, almost four years ago now. And we're back here uh, in Costa Rica now. Yeah, I can actually see it reflected in your on your porch window there. I can see a palm tree swaying in the breeze and that really exquisite pool. <laughs> I'm pretty, I'm jealous, needless to say. It's it's quite cold out today in Connecticut. I think you can see the window behind my back. Yeah, it is pretty cold out. Um, all right. Well, the, I, I appreciate you bringing that up. And I know, Tom, like if somebody, I, I, I think you're one of the most impressive full text guys that I have come across in um, all of functional medicine. And I know that when you say you read something, you really do a, a deep dive. In fact, you tape it up on your ceiling if need be, I know, to just sort of internalize um, the content. And I, I want to talk about that. So I, I, it's, I'm sure that it's an important assay that, you've, uh, that you developed with, um, with Vibrant. So drawing on that information, what are the biggest factors impacting brain health today? Uh, oh, that, let, let's just get right into it. Yeah. And uh, uh, it's great to start there. Let's just start with that. It's marvelous. And we have the same bodies as our ancestors thousands of years ago. We have the same functioning kidneys and gallbladder and surfaces on our joints and the enzymes we're producing, cardiac function, it's all the same. And what did our immune systems have to protect our ancestors from? Bugs, parasites, viruses, mold, fungus, and bacteria. There was nothing else for them. What about bisphenol A? There was no bisphenol A. What about mercury? Well, what about perchloroethylene? What about benzene? You pump gas, can you smell the gas? You're smelling benzene. And if you're smelling it, it's going right up to your brain and it's a neurotoxicant triggering inflammation while you're smelling it. Yeah. Well, I feel fine. It's not so bad. Of course, of course. So it's not going to knock you out. But is it harmless? No, it's not. So when we have a base understanding like that, we start teaching our patients to look for the little things. As an example, Mrs. Patient, when you pump gas, can you sometimes smell the gas? Yes, you're smelling benzene. And benzene's a neurotoxin. But you have to pump gas, but you're standing downwind walk around to the other side of the hose and now you're standing upwind and you don't smell it, you know, or put the automatic fill on and just walk away. That we have to shift our paradigm in how we engage with our environment. But in order to do that, we have to understand why we need to shift our paradigm. So pediatrics came out with a policy statement a while ago. And as you know, a policy statement is not an author 
a policy statement comes from the board, the American Academy of Pediatrics. And they said that the Toxic Substance Control Act, which is the governing regulations at the federal level for all chemicals introduced into our environment, the TSCA failed miserably to protect our children. This is a policy statement for the American Academy of Pediatrics. And it's 247 pounds of chemicals manufactured or imported into the United States per person per day. 247 pounds every single day of the year. Oh. Which means that's a pr the exposure in our environment is a primary reason. We've all heard that uh, newborn children in America have at least 200 chemicals in their bloodstream that aren't supposed to be there, and many of them are neurotoxins. It's because mom is a walking pollution dump. I'm sorry to say it that way, but you know we accumulate these chemicals. And how did the TSCA allow all this to happen? You have to prove that the amount of benzene you smell when you're pumping gas is toxic to humans. You can't prove that. Now, there's no evidence that the amount of benzene that you inhale when you're pumping gas is toxic to humans, or that the amount of phthalates in nail polish that gets into your bloodstream is toxic to humans. Now, there's no evidence that the amount of phthalates that permeate into your bloodstream when you apply nail polish is toxic to humans. That's true. There is no evidence for any of that. Or the amount of mercury that you breathe in the air in a 24-hour period is toxic to humans. But this stuff is accumulative. Now, give me 20 years of a woman putting nail polish on, the standard toxic nail polish, plus all of the other exposures, 247 pounds per person per day. And now we understand why these children are born with so many chemicals in their bloodstream at birth that aren't supposed to be there. Yeah. And I'll give you an example, if I may. Mm -hmm. Uh, because this, this puts it in perspective. They took 346 pregnant women in Chicago, eighth month of pregnancy. They measured five phthalates uh, in their urine, just five. One of them was BPA, but they, they measured five out of the hundreds that were exposed to. They then followed the offspring of those pregnancies uh, after birth. And when those children turned seven years old, they did Wexler IQ tests on them. And there's not much, uh, Cara, in medicine that's all or every, but this was every. Every child, oh, they, they took the mother's results and they divided them into quartiles, the lowest, the next, the third, and the highest quartile. Every child whose mother was in the highest quartile of phthalates in urine in pregnancy compared to the children whose mothers were in the lowest quartile, every child in the highest quartile, their IQ was 6.7 to 7.4 points lower. Wow. Every child. Now, one point difference is noticeable in a person, but seven points is a difference between a child working really hard getting straight A's and a child working really hard getting straight C's. They're working really hard, but they just don't have the neural network. They can't deal with it. They, they are not going to do well. That kid doesn't have a chance to excel in life because mom was in the highest quartile of phthalates in her urine during the eighth month of pregnancy. You know, so you see stuff like that, and that's just five of the hundreds of chemicals. Then, oh, one more thing for everyone yes. who's listening. 
go to Google and type in phthalates and neurogenesis. And look at the studies, how phthalates inhibit neurogenesis. Just look at the studies. And then you can see the correlation. And every one of, so our message is every woman of childbearing to be tested for toxic overload before she gets pregnant right. and educated on how to detox for six months to a year to prepare for baby so that baby has the best chance in the world of having excelling intelligence. Because that's what we need to save the planet is the next generation to be much smarter than us because we're the ones that have blown it you yeah. know, so bad. We're, we're, we're the ones that have allowed this to occur. And I take it back to the Toxic Substance Control Act where those senators and representatives got paid off to pass legislation that has no teeth. Yeah. It has no teeth. In, in over 30 years, that legislation, which is still the governing legislation, has only regulated five chemicals or classes of chemicals. In 30 years, that's how ineffective it is. That's why manufacturers do not have to prove chemicals are safe. They don't have to do safety studies. They don't have to accumulate data about others who have looked at safety of, of their compounds. They don't have to do any of that. That the, that the public has to pay for any research to prove something is not safe. God, Tom, thanks, thanks for that intro. Um, it's, you know, it's terrifying, and yet we're seeing it manifest everywhere. So I, I just wanted yeah. to sort of add a couple of thoughts I had while you were sharing. Um, one of the, the first thought was, I was at a laboratory for a long time, as you know, a clinical lab, and we released a uh, toxin, organotoxin panel. And, you know, as we were validating and evolving the assay, of course, everybody's collecting their urine and donating their blood in the lab. And this one, this one guy, this one analytical chemist, his, they had just, his wife had just put a plug in, like a, like a Febreze plug in or something in their house. So this extremely common thing that you yes. can smell wafting out of the grocery store whenever you sort of venture near that aisle, if you go in a regular grocery store. And he was just dumping massive organotoxins into his urine just it was it was a night and day proposition and it was and 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 then they removed the Febreze and we tested and and it had dropped considerably although there was still some there and, we, and I've seen that you know time and again you know being able to you know being in a lab that ran this panel and and you know just water bottle exposure for somebody who's trying to do right by what they're drinking and yeah. is you know consuming water you know encased in plastic but and and the other thought that I had that I wanted to throw out was Looking at epigenetics, there was a twin study, one developed breast cancer, and they were attributing it, they're, so they're identical twins, genetics are identical, and they were wondering why did this one twin develop breast cancer, and of course it's environment, and they're looking at epigenetics, and the only distinguishing factor, apparently, of this child was the fact that they painted her toenails every day of her life to tell the difference between yes. her and her sibling. Isn't yes. that... and 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 they could they were scratching their heads as to what could have been the cause but boy that stuck out for me and so i started with our ancestors and our bodies yeah. are the same as our ancestors we don't have a defense yeah. mechanism against all of these chemicals that we are exposed to this is a paradigm yeah. shift that if everyone who's listening to this will take 1 hour a week mm -hmm. to look into this a little bit so that you're not overwhelmed cuz we're all busy in life 
But if you allocate one hour a week to this in six months, you've got this and it's just so overwhelming that you realize I have to make sure all of my patients understand the critical importance of having a detox lifestyle. Not just once a year. That's right. Yeah, but all the time. It needs to be a priority because the um, uh, phthalates that are leaching out of the plastic blinds on your windows, the formaldehyde that's leaching out of the carpet, the uh, 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 chemicals coming out, the flame retardant chemicals coming out of the blankets on your bed, you know, all of these different things that we've just taken for granted for convenience, we do not have an immune system that's designed to deal with this stuff. Yeah, yeah. Bugs, parasites, viruses, mold, fungus, and bacteria. That's it. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, uh, that's a just very, it's eloquently eloquently stated, although, you know, as always, when we go on this, when we're on this topic, it's it's overwhelming. It's like, overwhelming. it's gut-wrenching. It's, you yes. know, it's so depressing, because you're right. Yeah, our system has no clue. I mean, that's why they're persistent organic pollutants, right? That's I mean, what right. does our body do with them? Right. They're, just, they're Greek. <laughs> right, right. And, you know, uh, that's why I always say on stage, don't ever say vaccines cause autism. You sound like a nutcase. If that were true, everyone that got a vaccine would develop autism. That's not true. But it's accurate to say vaccines may take somebody over the edge of toxicity where they can't deal with the adjuvant. And then then you can develop some symptoms from that. That's rational, but it's a toxicity level. And of course, we know Professor Schoenfeld uh, in Betrayal. We interviewed Professor Schoenfeld and and because his book had just come out, Vaccines and Autoimmunity. And he said, we're very much in favor of vaccines. They've saved millions of lives. However, if a person carries the gene HLA-DRB1, they are at very high risk of having a sensitivity reaction to the adjuvant in the vaccine. So in those people, caution is advised. But it's taking them over the threshold. Yeah where their body can't handle the assault because there's so many toxins in their body or the genetics that they have that limit their ability to deal with these toxins. So it's a paradigm shift for everyone if they can take an hour a week to just look at a little more about this. Mm-hmm. So we, so I, we started this with me asking you what are the big, biggest factors impacting brain health today? So clearly, so toxins, it sounds like, you know, given that we've just devoted a significant chunk of time are the overarching absolute number one variable in your yes. book. Okay. Yes. Okay. Yes. And, and mechanistically, so now I'm going to ask you about autoimmunity and, and brain health and, you know, connect the dots, like what mechanistically, what's going on with these toxins? There are a a number of mechanisms. A common one is that the toxin, the immune system can't destroy it. Our detox pathways don't break it down. The toxin binds to our tissue. Um, It's really easy. The easy one to understand is BPA and thyroid. Just Google BPA and thyroid and look at all the studies that BPA binds onto your thyroid. You've formed a neoepitope, a new compound. And the immune system recognizes this foreign compound, so it goes after that compound to destroy. You make antibodies to the neoepitope. When you make antibodies to the neoepitope, you damage that thyroid cell that the BPA is bound to. When you damage the thyroid cell, you increase thyroid antibodies to get rid of that debris. 
to get those old damaged thyroid cells out of there. When you increase the antibodies going after the neoepitope to get rid of the debris, that's fine. But you're exposed to BPA every day. And if your genetics are allowing it to bind to your thyroid, you make more neoepitopes, you make more antibodies to the neoepitope, you make more antibodies to thyroid to get rid of the damaged thyroid cell. And here comes Hashimoto's eventually. So just Google BPA and thyroid and look at the different studies that talk about the mechanism. You can take that same concept and take it to the brain. You can take it to the joints. You can take it to any tissue in the body. That neoepitope formation is a common initiating factor in the development of antibodies to self. Another one is molecular mimicry. I remember really clearly, you know, um, uh, Professor Alan Ebringer, we interviewed him for betrayal and because uh, 1978, January 1978, my first genetics class, my very first genetics class, the pr pr professor came in one day and he's holding up this paper and he's just so excited when he comes in holding up the paper that this graduate student at King's College in London had just published on molecular mimicry and it was the association of uh, Klebsiella pneumoniae oh. with ankylosing spondylitis. And if you carry the gene uh, HLA-B27, you're at higher risk of the antibodies which are fighting Klebsiella going after tissue that kind of looks like the protein structure of Klebsiella and you develop ankylosing spondylitis. That was the first uh, study that my professor had ever heard of and he brought it in so excited and I remembered that over the years. And when I went to meet Professor Alan Ebringer, he's just a wonderful Chris Kringle kind of a guy. But now he's got, I don't know how many, 20, 30 papers on molecular mimicry and rheumatoid, molecular mimicry and MS, uh, bacterial infections as the initiating trigger in the development of the autoimmune mechanism that eventually manifests as these autoimmune diseases. So it's molecular mimicry and neoepitopes are two of the common mechanisms that initiate this autoimmune mechanism years before you've killed off enough tissue to have dysfunction and an eventual diagnosis. Okay. All right. So we're going to be seeing that with a lot of variables, not just sort of the, some of the classic organotoxins you mentioned, but obviously. Right. Oh, bacteria, yeah. viruses, yeah. chemicals. Foods, um, that, that's one of the basic premises behind wheat-related disorders. And why are there so many different autoimmune mechanisms associated with wheat-related disorders? And you put them on a thorough gluten-free diet, and antibodies to self start to diminish. That's a common mechanism as to why um, autoimmune mechanisms can occur from food-related disorders. Um, all right, let me think what I want to ask you next. I think... so. You know, I was going to talk to you later on about labs. I wanted to, I know you do antibody testing, and I, and we've dialogued before about reference ranges. I mean, we can, you know, we, we, can, we can look at very, um, we can look at trends. So, you know, think going back to the quartile reference, you know, we can look at somebody who might be in the third quartile and, 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 and think of them as perhaps slightly higher than the, than the rest of the population or, or quintiles, I should say, the third would be a little bit higher. Um, I, I, so given what you've described, I'm going to infer that if you're looking at a panel of antibodies, 
you're going to be concerned about things that are that, that findings that are just a little bit above the standard the, a little bit above say one standard deviation or so half the population or i mean are you let me are you going to be interpreting these things pretty sensitively i mean talk to me why don't you just talk to me about labs and these antibody labs in general and how you're using them and how you're interpreting them since yes i'm stumbling yeah. out with that question you bet. The, the first screening tool that we look at and when looking at test results for antibodies is, is the immune system competent or not? So we always look at total IgA, total IgG, total IgM. And if the totals are low, it's very difficult to get accurate interpretations out of a test for antibodies. Their immune system is not able to get the job done. Yeah. So, and then you have to ask why and where's that coming from? But if the totals are adequate, then we can assume if it's a good lab, then the results are, are accurate. And my, um, I don't want to wait until someone has such um, tissue damage, ongoing tissue damage that's occurred for en enough years that they present with symptoms. I would like to show them, if I can, here's the mechanism that's going on for you now. If this mechanism continues, and when you have elevated antibodies to myelin basic protein, as an example, if you have elevated antibodies and they're substantially eleva elevated, they're never neutral. If they're elevated, they're not passive is the right word. They're not passive. They're killing off myelin more than you're reproducing. That's a definition of an elevated level of antibodies. There's more than... Uh, why is there a normal reference range for TPO antibodies? Why, <laughs> why is it ever normal to have right. some? Right. And I, I, I asked right. our friend, I asked our friend Terry Walls about that, and yeah. you know, she, she was eloquent in her yeah. explanation that we have to get rid of old and damaged tissue, and if you're getting rid of by antibodies about the same amount as you're making you're in the reference range, you're normal. There's no symptoms, there's no evidence of thyroid dysfunction. But if you're elevated, you're killing off more cells than you're making. Huh, that's interesting. And eventually, that accumulative killing off more cells than you're making mechanism is going to reduce thyroid function to a degree where you start getting symptoms. Or reduce neurological function to a degree where you start getting symptoms. So it just depends on what antibodies you're talking about. So Mrs. Patient, if you've got elevated antibodies, that tells us that your immune system is killing off more cells than you're making. So the question is, why is your immune system going after myelin? And that's where docs in their training, they learn about molecular mimicry or neoepitopes or food sensitivities that may be associated. And you just go down the checklist. Is it this one? Is it this one? Is it this one? and you can find which ones are likely contributing to this exaggerated immune response. And you get that antigen out of there, and sometimes, and depending on the thoroughness, the antibodies go down in six months to a year. So then you, the patient says, well, am I okay now? Can I, can I eat wheat now? And the answer is no, I've never seen that happen, but you can try. And then in six months, we'll do the antibody test again and you'll see, you know, but so that's the concept. And we, we call that, and I don't call it that, uh, Professor Schoenfeld actually uh, called it predictive autoimmunity. 
that you're looking to identify the mechanisms years in advance. That's the whole basis of where Cyrex Lab was formed. Right. That, that was the reason to form Cyrex right. uh, in 2010, and now Vibrant, and now other labs that are doing antibody testing, is to help people identify mechanisms years before there's so much damage that it's obvious. So let me ask you this then, background antibodies, just going back to what Terry said to you, that are within normal limits may not actually be a bad thing. I Correct. Mean, is, is that, okay, that, okay, yes. that's pretty interesting. Okay, that's a strong statement. I mean, we've certainly had plenty of patients come to our practice with you know, antibody testing that they've obtained elsewhere and they're really anxious about those background antibodies. Yes. Okay. Uh, our, our opinion, and my experience has been so far, if they're in a normal range, this is how the normal range gets determined. That those people, uh, a history of people who did not develop any symptoms, did not develop any disease with that level of antibody. So that's the reference range. But when you're outside that range, you're much higher risk of causing tissue damage. So... I want to just ask you another question. I'm going a little bit to the left, and then we're going to circle back, and I want to talk about how you're, how you're recommending interventions when you're moving that list. So we're going to come back there. Um, and then I'm going to also nail you down on, on, on the labs that you're running as well, because people will want to know that. Um, I, I, I'm sure that you're, you've seen the recent publication showing that anti-nuclear antibody um, incidence is, is, is just like rising. Yes. You know, meteorically. Really great, great example. Great example. Talk about that. Yeah, yeah. Just pull, pull up the studies. Just Google mercury and nucleus of the cells. And you see that mercury deposits in the nucleus of your cells, as do other toxins. So why is your immune system attacking the nucleus in your cells? Well, what's in there that your immune system's trying to protect you from? So anyone that has elevated ANA antibodies, I'm going on a deep dive as to food sensitivities, chemical sensitivities, mold sensitivities, what is it that, so we look peripherally to see what else is your immune system trying to fight. Yeah. And that's where we begin our attack. So it's no great surprise to you that we're seeing this incredible oh, gosh, jump no. in it. No, yeah. no, it's consistent yeah. with the premise of the amount of environmental toxins that we're being exposed to. They get deposited buried deep in your, uh, in your tissue. It was, um, uh, oh, who's that osteopath, Butar, uh, uh, oh, what's his name? I'm sorry, I'm not remembering his name. 15, 18 years ago, this osteopath, um, uh, his child was given a vaccine and had a severe reaction. And so he devoted his career after that to reversing this child's autism and what are the mechanisms of autism. And so I heard him speaking one time about heavy metals and the brain. And he would say, you know, you run the tests on these children and you do, uh, at the time he was doing uh, provocative tests on these kids and they come back normal. And he said, sometimes you had to do the test two, three, four times while you were working with the child over a number of months before they'd start to show positive because these toxins were buried so deep in the tissue. You just couldn't get them out in a provocative test to identify. But he'd start his detox protocols and his nutrition protocols, whatever else he was doing, and it would take three tests, two, three tests, before they started showing pot, and then it just floods out of their tissue. And not aggressively, but over time. 
and he was cautious as to how he was chelating and pulling that stuff out. But that introduced me to the concept that toxins can get buried deep in the tissue so they're not, not easy to measure. Yeah. And, and that's consistent with the ANA antibodies going up. Hmm. That's, I tied yeah. those two together. Yeah, well, and they did actually show that in teens in particular, there was quite the rise. Yeah. Um, okay. Talk about, um, well, I think you've already touched on it. So just let me ask you if you want to add anything else about, you know, gut involvement. You mentioned Klebsiella, but you, I know you're, you're thinking a lot about gut here. Oh, my goodness, yes. Uh, I think it's the most important tissue in our body to focus on, on any chronic health complaint. Okay. Uh, uh, you, know, you know, in the brain, uh, for every message from the brain going down to the gut, there are nine from the gut going up to the brain. We now know that melatonin levels are controlled or modulated by uh, your microbiota. Uh, serotonin levels are modulated by it. Neurotransmitters are modulated by your microbiota. So we want a diverse microbiome and, you know, the studies keep flooding out about different families of the microbiome and their impact on systemic function. And uh, my world, I'm just on the introductory level trying to understand this stuff and I'm shotgunning, if you will, with patients. I teach them to rebuild their microbiome, that that's a primary focus in beginning a change in lifestyle is that they're eating prebiotic foods, root vegetables every day, two other prebiotic foods every day, fermented vegetables every day, uh, and I supplement them for a couple of months. Well, but I'm while they're transitioning into a lifestyle where they're feeding their microbiome every day, that that becomes a priority for them and their family, knowing that I'm going to have so many systemic benefits for that person as they're changing, increasing the diversity of a healthy microbiome. Okay, well said, thanks. Um, so toxins, numero uno, and then, you know, well, right there is a gut and rebuilding a gut. And I'm assuming, obviously, since we have loads of, quote, tough gut patients, you're doing a five hour with them in some capacity and cleaning yes. things up before you're loading them up with prebiotics. Or I would imagine you could probably toggle through both things based on how they tolerate. Yes, you know, we've, uh, uh, both you and I, when we started our careers, I think I was a few years before you, but, you know, we were using lactobacillus acidophilus and bifidobacterium when patients thought we were speaking Greek. Yeah. And they'd say that they'd go to their family doctor or their internist who would say bacteria. What, well, that's not good for you. It's not safe. And, uh, but we were shotgunning and, and still we shotgun to some degree, but now I'm so much more uh, uh, emphasizing the dietary lifestyle. And Mrs. Patient, I want you to buy every root vegetable in the store. Always buy organic, but buy a couple of every, rutabagas and turnips and parsnips and radishes and carrots and sweet potatoes. Not too many white potatoes because of the glycemic index thing, but get all the other root vegetables. And every day you have one of those root vegetables, you know, and they'll say, well, I don't know how to cook a turnip. And I say, well, neither do I. And they start laughing and they say, this is what I do with a turnip. You know, I dice it, I slice an onion, peel some garlic, a little coconut oil or avocado oil. And I throw it in there and soften it up a little bit. And I put some peanut sauce on it or some sweet Thai chili sauce or whatever I'm using and I eat it. 
You know, <laughs> what do I, what about parsnips? I, I dice them up and I slice an onion and a little garlic, you know, I do that with all of them. Uh, <laughs> you you, you just want to get them down there. You, and you've all been to restaurants where they, they serve thinly sliced peels of radish on your salad and it looks really pretty and they're eating them raw. Mm-hmm. Eat them raw. There's yeah, nothing yeah. wrong with that, you know, but get root vegetables in every day because root vegetables are the fibers that feed the probiotics in your gut. And you don't want to eat just one because you don't want to just build up one family or a couple of families of probiotics. You want to rebuild the whole world, the whole milieu. And so you use as many different types of fiber as you can by alternating the root vegetables every day. It's kind of, it's amazing to me, the more sophisticated we get in our ability to evaluate what's going on in our uh, looking at the micro, microbiome and understanding its impact, the closer we become to food. Isn't yes. it? It's, it's just, it's, it's, yeah. it's so fascinating. Well, you know, Mark, Mark has said it, you know, so well, as we all have, food is medicine. I mean, you have one of his books is food, food is medicine, right? Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. So moving away from a capsule of probiotics and just supporting our patients and building their own. Um, so you're, you're thinking about EMF toxicity and I'm sure you've got some thoughts on 5G and, you know, wh- the role that it, it, this, ex- this particular exposure is playing into this whole conversation, autoimmunity, brain health, et cetera. Yeah. Uh-huh. It was uh, 1979, the first study I saw that kids that live within a quarter mile of high-powered tension wires mm-hmm. had a much higher incidence of leukemia. Mm-hmm. And uh, actually, it was my first week in my education, my very first week, and there was a sign in the hall, Dr. Sheldon Deal, Mr. Arizona, was going to be speaking on campus that weekend. I said, oh, a bodybuilder. All right, this is a healthy guy. I'll go listen to what he has to say. And so he had a color television in the room, turned it on, kept the volume off, walked over to his briefcase, pulled out a bar magnet the size of an iPhone, walked up to the color television, and the picture went upside down. And he walked away and it went right side up. And he walked back and went upside down, and he walked away and went right side up. They've since fixed all that in television. But back then he was saying, that's what electromagnetic pollution does to your brain and your nervous system. It switches you. It's called neurological switching. People that say right when they mean left, they write the number three backwards. You know, all of the, you, they do A instead of E and they get them reversed. And all of those little things that we see in our patients sometimes, it's neurological switching. And back then, 1978, he was talking about batteries in watches on our wrists that that was a fairly new thing, batteries and watches. And now we take it for granted, all the stuff we wear in our bodies and all the Bluetooth. And, but it has an impact. And by itself, it's not going to take you down. But if you include all of the other environmental toxins that we're exposed to, you know, in the book, You Can Fix Your Brain, I talk about health as a pyramid, that we have to think of it like a pyramid. And a pyramid has four sides to it. There's a base, that's musculoskeletal. That's the home of chiropractic and naturopathy and osteopathy and massage and pillows and exercise and bones and muscles and all of that. 
structural problems can cause any symptom in the body. And, and I'm not saying that flip, uh, flippantly. Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. It really can. Then one side is biochemistry. What we eat, we drink, we breathe, and we're all experts at that to some degree. One side is spiritual emotional, stinking thinking. And then the fourth side is electromagnetic. And we have to look at all four sides of pollution or stress that may be coming into our bodies for the patient that's in front of us. That it's not always just biochemistry, so looking at diet and nutrition. It's not always just emotional or spiritual. It's not always just electromagnetic. It's not just chiropractic, you know, or, or the spine and you adjust the spine and everything gets well. Sometimes it does. Sometimes it does the most dramatic things you never believe, but not always. Yeah. Uh, that it's four sides that I see that we all have to look at. Electromagnetic is one of those, and it's just ridiculous. I'm sorry, I shouldn't be that way. Um, <laughs> it's challenging to have uh, to to not get into discussion with someone who believes electromagnetics are not a problem. Right. How can they not be a problem? There are hundreds and hundreds of studies that say sometimes it's a problem. Yeah. What's, uh, it's fascinating to me. What a, you're such a good storyteller. Uh, you know, of course, that original uh, introduction to the potential back when you were a student would make this very sticky and you would be mindful of it just way back in the day. I mean, God, wristwatch batteries that seem so benign yes. compared to what oh. we're inundated with now. I mean, and, there was, and there, there was a second talk a couple of weeks later, Dr. Kirpal Singh, an MD, was coming from Los Angeles and I was in Chicago to talk about electroacupuncture by Vol. Oh, and this was 1978. And he talked about this instrument that had a probe on the hand measuring electromagnetic current, had a patient come in, 44-year-old woman, recently diagnosed with type 2 diabetes. And he did his scan and he said, well, ma'am, yes, you have diabetes. You um, uh, had a very severe fever, uh, viral fever, when you were a child, a young child, and you almost died and the virus settled in your pancreas, you've had blood sugar problems your whole life, and eventually it moved into type two diabetes. And she said, well, you're exactly right. I did have blood sugar problems my whole life, but I was never sick as a child. I never got really sick. Yes, you did. No, I didn't. Yes, you did. I'm sorry, doctor, I didn't. He says, is your mother alive? Yes, here, call her. And hi, mom, I'm at the doctor's office. I'm fine. But he says I was really sick when I was a child. I was never really sick. Oh, honey, you almost died. Your fever was over 105 and the doctor was out of town. We put you in ice baths when she was like two years old. And I just sat there and I said, what? <laughs> 42 years later, this guy identified what happened to that woman by a probe on the hand. This is my first month or so in my education and said, what? Now that just opened me up immediately to the whole world between Dr. Deal and Dr. Singh, that, that opened me up to this world of electromagnetics that for some people, it's what takes them over the edge. Yeah, I think yeah. that's a healthy way to hold the world of electromagnetics. Right, right. God, it would be a whole different conversation. I'd love to hear about how you address it with patients. I want to, but I want to, you know, in our, in our kind of final uh, time together 
and and this we might be able to factor it in but just is it what you're thinking about like how you're working and working somebody up um you know the antibody tests you can go ahead and mention brands are you doing stool testing and you know and what, what's your general thinking about working with folks and then i want you to talk about your main interventions you know as much as you can and then yeah. we'll and then on the website you guys we're gonna just i'll just we'll link to all sorts of stuff so that you you already know you the dr Dr. O'Brien's website and all of that, but just all of for you to be able to do a drill down and, and, and be trained by him, we'll, um, we'll link to all of that, but okay, go ahead. Mrs. Patient, your immune system is the armed forces in your body. It's there to protect you. There's an army, an air force, a Marines, a Coast Guard, IGA, IGG, IGE, IGM. They're different branches of the armed forces designed to protect you. So docs, we can't just do IGG testing and come to conclusions. Because if you do IgG testing for 90 foods and it comes back, they're okay with wheat. Are they okay with wheat? No. All we know is that the Air Force hasn't been called out. What about IgA? Well, I didn't check it. What about IgE? Well, I didn't check it. So the way that we've used testing in the past was very helpful, but it's not current. You have to look at as many branches of the armed forces as you can. So that's why I so like uh, Vibrant America and their silicone chip technology, because I read a paper uh, from Joe Murray at Mayo. Now, as you know, I've been in the world of celiac and wheat-related disorders for over 20 years now talking about this. And there are four guys called, the, I, I call them the horsemen, the four horsemen in celiac disease. They've published over 100 papers, 150 papers each. There is Alessio Fasano at Harvard, Stefano Guandolini, University of Chicago, Peter Green at Columbia, and Joe Murray of Mayo. Joe Murray is the one that has leather patches on the elbows of his sport coats. He wears a bow tie. He's got horn rim glasses. His papers are always so easy to read as a clinician because he, he thinks like a clinician. His team at Mayo came out in January of 2016 talking about silicone chip technology and referring to it as a new era in laboratory medicine. A new era. Um, and they said clinically useful, currently, currently clinically useful to be used, right? So I talk it, I think of it like the 30-30 rule when I'm explaining it to patients or to docs. 30 years ago, it took a 30 by 30 room, floor to ceiling computers at MIT to generate the computing power of this phone. Yeah. We right. never could have guessed 30 years ago what this phone could do. The same has happened in laboratory medicine and right. silicone chip technology is the new technology. 97 to 99% sensitivity, 98 to 100% specificity every single time. Now, when you look at sensitivity and specificity, some labs are saying 97% sensitivity compared to standards. That's a caveat, right? It's just 97 to 99% sensitivity, period. 98 to 100% specificity, period. And Mayo's written four papers that I've seen on it. Now, Peter Green at Columbia has written two papers on silicone chip technology. So that's a technology we use okay. because it's on the money, as far as I know, every single time. I'm not a lab medicine specialist, you know, this so is, I, this is your antibody testing. So what, antibody testing. And what, so what, we yeah. start. So I did all that as a preface, why I use these guys. Okay. 
Every patient gets a week oh. Zoomer. And, and you know what? Give me, um, you can give me a link to this as well. And if you want to give me a link to those papers, actually, we'll, we'll bug you later. Sure. So you don't have sure. to think. Yeah. Sure. Every patient that comes to me gets a wheat zoomer and a neural zoomer plus because you zoom in on the problem they're called wheat zoomer. Yeah. It's the most comprehensive test for a wheat related disorder that I've ever seen yet okay. anywhere in the world. And I lecture all over the world on this and I haven't seen any lab anywhere that's this comprehensive and this accurate. They look at 26 peptides of poorly digested wheat. And so it's extremely comprehensive. And the Neural Zoomer Plus is the one I said earlier that actually the mindset came right here where I'm sitting. Uh, I read 93 research papers on the blood-brain barrier. And why do I do that? I don't care if they're presenting with joint pain because the brain is the canary in the coal mine. And if they've got inflammation in their brain to a substantial degree, the Alzheimer's Association came out last year and they said one in three elders dies with Alzheimer's or another dementia. It's one in three of us now where our brains are on fire for decades, killing off cells. And so the NeuroZoomer Plus is the most comprehensive test that I've ever seen for this. And it's 97 to 99% sensitivity and specificity, looking at antibodies. So I start there. And then if I need to do uh, 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 tests for arthritis, I'll look for antibodies to arthritis. I start there to see what's my biomarker because this is what I'm going to use as my biomarker six months or a year from now when we go back to see how effective are we being in our protocols. I want to see, Mrs. Patient, you had 11 antibodies to your brain that were elevated six months ago. Now you've got three. Great. We're on the right track. Keep up. You're doing great. But I'm not going to base the determination of my success on how they feel because the underlying immune mechanisms can still be going on because you don't feel when you've got elevated myelin antibodies or cerebellar antibodies or thyroid. You don't feel it until you've got so much damage. So I'm going to base our success on reducing the immune response given they've got an adequately functioning immune system. And then once those tests come back and we identify what the immune system says is the problem in the body, then we go after it. We're looking at food sensitivities. We're looking at chemical sensitivities, heavy metals. But I'm pretty much focused on environmental as our initiating spot. Unless as a clinician, I get a hit that says, we've got to look at um, uh, emotional or spiritual here. Okay. And if I get a hit for that, then I'm going to recommend they see a specialist and just have a conversation to see if there is some fuel to that that may be contributing to their immune mechanism right now. Got it. Okay, good. Good. That's great. And then what, so just give me a rough idea of some kind of, um, you know, a baseline intervention that you might be uh, starting with. Baseline it intervention is food-related disorders. For uh, I haven't found anyone yet that doesn't come back. Well, right. that's not true. Since using the wheat zoomer, yeah. I've had three people come back in uh, since 2016, almost four years now, uh, come back normal, Negative. who had right. adequately functioning immune systems. Right. And there's a paper that just, <laughs> there, there, there's a patient, there, there's a paper that just came out by Fasano in January. Listen to the title of the paper. All disease begins in the quote, leaky and quote, gut. Wow. All disease begins wow. in the gut. And Fasano, who 
he has to be so careful in any, everything he says because people are going to jump on and use that information and quote him. He's now confident enough to say all disease begins in the leaky gut. That's extraordinary. And in, that, in that paper, he talks about the two markers that consistently will cause transient intestinal permeability. And what are they? Gluten. Every time you're exposed to wheat, you get transient intestinal permeability and yep. lipopolysaccharides. So toxins that get into the body yep. uh, through, through the gut. So every has time he shifted, eat, Has he shifted his position? Now, he has not been somebody who suggests abstinence of gluten. Well, right, no, no, no. As far as I know, he has not shifted because, you know, he gets quoted uh, for everything he says, but he's yep. showing the data about right. transient, and you and I both have sat with him at lunch and he's eating dinner rolls. <laughs> you <know? laughs> You'd be surprised. You'd be surprised, wouldn't you, in our world of who might be imbibing on a dinner roll or two. <laughs> That's right. That's exactly right. Uh, you know, but but um, um, transient, when transient transitions to pathogenic intestinal permeability, now you got leaky yeah. gut. And that's the key. And what triggers from transient to pathogenic, meaning it's not transient anymore, your microbiome and what kind of a microbiome you've developed over time. So yeah, it's a yeah. big picture view. That's in my book, The Autoimmune Fix. And that's also the base message in betrayal. Uh, well, by the way, a betrayal is at the dr.com forward slash betrayal. It's free for everybody. And we've had over 600,000 people that have watched. Amazing. It's just a, I mean, it was an extraordinary accomplishment, uh, that, that uh, docuseries. Really extraordinary time. I think you kind of, you set the bar with that one. I Thank know you, you guys so worked really hard on it. Um, okay, so we've covered a lot. We've talked about labs. We've talked about diet. We've talked about EMF. We've talked about mechanisms. Any core supplements that you're turning to? Uh, yeah, um, spore probiotics. Uh, that's one that I'm using in the first two months with everyone while they're transitioning to a uh, food selection lifestyle that's more focused on feeding their microbiome. Mrs. Patient, for a couple of months, I'd like you to take this capsule, take one every couple, three days, and if everything feels good, then take one every two days, and if everything feels good, take one every day. Well, what do you mean it feels good? Well, some people get a little bloated, a little gas if they take too much too quickly. Uh, so just transition it in there, but do it for a couple of months and then you're done. Now, I personally take it every day and I will for the rest of my life. Some days I forget, but I will take it. But I'm not asking you to do that just for two months while you're transitioning your lifestyle to eat more root vegetables and other uh, prebiotic foods. Uh, so I'll use four uh, uh, probiotics, uh, but, and that's just a given. Aside from that, the other one that we give to almost everyone is... Um, gluten digesting enzymes that you do. because we now know uh, if they come back positive on a wheat zoomer it's impossible to live gluten-free that uh, Peter Green one of the four horsemen published in gastroenterology in March of this last year he had 804 users take testing equipment into restaurants all over the country gluten-free restaurants and order from the gluten-free menu and when the waitress walked away, they pulled out their testing equipment. When the food was delivered, they tested the food. 54% of gluten-free pizzas are not gluten-free. 52% of gluten-free pasta is not gluten-free. And 32% of everything on the menu 
looking at 5,624 different foods is not gluten-free. 32% of everything on a gluten-free menu is not gluten-free. So we educate patients to take one capsule before you start eating because it will digest uh, all of the gluten in a slice of whole wheat bread. Now, I don't tell patients that or else they're going to eat the bread and take two capsules, right? But, uh, but for clinicians to know, it'll digest all the gluten uh, uh, up to a slice of whole wheat bread. So it'll minimize the damage. It won't turn exactly. it off entirely, but it should sort of exactly. calm it a little bit. Exactly. Wow. Okay. All right. Listen, we could talk all day, but I know you have a lot to do. You have to go and maybe you're going to run in the ocean or something like that, but <laughs> I can see it. it's just so beautiful there. Um, but I just, I thank you so much for taking the time and I just appreciate your hard work in this in this oh. world and translating it and putting it out there for all of us and all the, all, all just the regular, the regular folk who, oh. um, who well, really yeah. hunger for this. Thanks so much. I mean, what you're doing is so great and you know, people watching this and I hope that, um, um, our, our clinicians will just allocate an hour a week and look into this world of environmental pollutants. You know, I'll, I'll send you the article from pediatrics, the policy yeah. statement. And you read that, yeah. and it's 27 trillion pounds per year, not including pharmaceuticals or petroleum products. Now take 27 trillion pounds and divide it by 350 million people in the U.S., that's 247 pounds per person per day. Yeah. Five 50-pound bags, and it's just, what? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Every single day. Yeah, every single day. And so when, when you, if you spend a little time looking at that, you can understand what's the fuel on the fire causing so much inflammation in our world today. And why are all the degenerative diseases just rising the way they are? Yep. And this, this is a primary. So thank you very much for the opportunity to send that message out. Thank you. Yeah, absolutely. All right. And that wraps up another amazing conversation with a great mind in functional medicine. I am so glad that you could join me. None of this would be possible through the years without our generous, wonderful sponsors, including Integrative Therapeutics, Metagenics, and Biotics. These are companies that I trust and I use with my patients every single day. Visit them at integrativepro.com, bioticsresearch.com, and metagenics.com. Please tell them that I sent you and thank them for making new frontiers in functional medicine possible. And one more thing, leave a review and a thumbs up on iTunes or SoundCloud or wherever you're hearing my voice. Um, these kind of comments will promote new frontiers in functional medicine, getting the word on functional medicine out there to the greater community. And for that, I thank you. Until next time.